Welcome to the New Books Network. It was finally decided that Yanka Lewinkoff, the baker's apprentice, who, it happens, was an orphan whom nobody would miss, should get on a horse and travel in the direction of Smolsky. Upon his arrival, he should find whatever official he could from the district and relate the whole case. As far as the elders of Kreskel were concerned, this might be too important not to get the Gentile authorities involved. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm speaking with Max Gross, author of The Lost Shtetl. In this richly described charming fable, a Yiddish-speaking town in Poland has somehow managed to survive without having experienced world wars or the murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. Hidden away in thickets of unchartered forest, the Yiddish-speaking Jews of Kreskel continue their simple ways of living without modern conveniences like antibiotics, cars, or technology. Minor spats between them and the nearest town have left them independent of the outside world, that is, until the day when Pesha Lindauer disappears. When the husband she just divorced also disappears, the townspeople naturally suspect him of murder. Hi, Max. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galid. It's good to be here. So what motivated you to write this lovely book? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, writers are always uh, trying to motivate themselves in all sorts of ways. Um, I had the idea for the book a long time ago. Um, You know, I I read this book by a historian named Lucy Davidovich, um, called The War Against the Jews, which was a book about the Holocaust. And um, I had this sort of, it was a very data-heavy book. There was a lot of information in it. And a lot of the names of all these towns that were destroyed in the Holocaust. And I had this sort of perverse thought, thinking about just all these towns that that were destroyed, I thought, you know, how is it possible that none of them escaped the Holocaust? Like, you know, wasn't there anything buried in the forest somewhere that um, was just overlooked? And I had this thought, oh, what if there was one? And um, it took me about a year or two before I actually started writing it after having this seed. But, you know, it was it seemed like an idea that could touch on so many things about like, you know, having missed history, that history is like passed you by. Um, and after about a year or so, I started thinking more clearly about the characters and the story. And then once, uh, once I had that story down, I sort of, uh, just ran with it. Mm. There's a lot of Yiddish in the book. Did you know it from growing up as I did, or did you have to do some research? Well, uh, Brooklyn Yiddish for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly grew up with, you know, my parents, probably know a lot more Yiddish than I did. And, you know, my parents' parents, my grandparents were all born in America, and all of their parents, all their parents were born elsewhere. So my grandparents all spoke Yiddish. My parents knew it a little, and it's like a photocopy of a photocopy. Um, I know probably a lot less. Um, But I certainly was always very interested in Yiddish. Um, I remember as a kid, I went on a... um, when my parents took me to this um, 
uh, friend's house, you know, their country house for the weekend. And um, I was had my own room, and I looked at the books on the bookshelf, and Isaac Bashevis Singer's book, uh, collection of short stories, um, Gimple the Fool was there. And I remember reading it and being just knocked down. I thought it was so interesting and funny and, and so unlike what I thought um, like a little Polish shtetl would be like um, or what those shtetls were like. And, um, you know, I became kind of a, an obsessive fan as even a teenager. And um, it's, it's, it stayed with me until the idea for this book came along. And I was like, you know, this could be something... I, I at first thought it was going to be a short story and then it became a novella and then it became a novel and then it became a longer novel and then it, which is what it, which is what it is. I loved it. I I just read it in, in basically in one sitting. <laughs> it was oh. wonderful. Thank how you. much <laughs> how much of the shtetl life was based on um what you absorbed from your grandparents? Well, um, you know, I did know one of my great grandparents who did come from Poland I, and his wife, too. But she died when I was very, very young. Um, and I it's it's funny. I did videotape him when I was a kid, when I was about 11 or, 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 or 12. I, I, I somehow knew that this guy and his backstory in that lost world um, was worth recording, um, even though I was still just a kid at the time. Um, I don't know what happened to that videotape. I mean, like, you know, gosh, it's been years since, you know, I've even held a videotape in my hand, so I have no idea what happened to it. Um, but I listened about like the, the, the village he came from this town in Poland called, I think it was called Kovovo. Um, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. Um, and a lot of it was also research. I, I spent a lot of time reading about, um, there's a wonderful book called um, There Once Was a World uh, by a writer named Yafa Elich. Um, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um, and she wrote about her hometown of Lithuania, and she did like a whole soup to nuts like explanation of shtetl life, like everything from market day to synagogue to, you know, the shtetl economy to, um, you know, all the history of this town, um, which was you know, an incredibly important resource, a really, really uh, valuable one. Um, but it also came from a lifetime of reading, not just Isaac Bishop, a singer, but um, a lot of writers like um, Shmuel Agnon and Shalom Alechem and uh, Chaim Grada and others, um, uh, just so many others that, you know, sort of I came across in my, in my life. Mm, I love those books too. Um, did you have a favorite character or a favorite scene in The Last Shuttle? Ah, um, well, I would say that um, the character of Yankel was the one who was certainly closest to my heart. Um, I think that a lot of writers, you know, the, no character is, you know, fully an author, but there, I, I wrote a lot of myself and my own reactions into, um, Yonkel. Um, and there's a, uh, a, an encounter, um, midway through the book, uh, between, um, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a, there's a scene where he goes to a, uh, brothel. Um, and I, that's all I'll say, but, um, 
that scene surprised me when I wrote it. Like I actually it went a very different way than I had anticipated it going. And um, I, I think that when a writer surprises themselves, it's when um, the best scenes happen. So it's the one that I find the most memorable, that scene in the brothel. Uh, just so you know, it's memorable for other people too. <laughs> so, <laughs> glad to hear it. Glad to hear yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so, the isolated town of Creskel is made up of about nearly 2,000 people. And there is some discussion of this in the book. Is that number sufficient to avoid the kind of genetic problems that come from interbreeding? Well, you know, I wasn't sure. Um, and that's one thing that I didn't really research so well. But I was thinking about that you know, problem in general. Although when you look at like Ashkenazi Jewry in general, like the, the, the number of progenitors for, you know, like Eastern Europe, there were, there were only a few like thousand who moved to Poland back in the, um, like, I guess it was the late 15th, early 16th century. Um, you know, and the, by the 1900s, it was like, you know, more than, it was a million. So I, I, I think that, I think that the number was one that I could sort of um, live with, but I wasn't sure. Okay. <laughs> a friend of mine said to me, like when I, when I told him the idea for the book, he said to me, like, you know, you really do have to think about that as a problem. Like you can't make the town too small. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> when you consider how many people in a normal even in today's world, how many people can you really know? It's there's a, a finite number, something like 150. So it's a big world for for many of them. Yes, you know, there's yes. lots of people. Everyone in that town has not met everyone else in that town. Let's just say, right? I think that you know it's funny because I was thinking about it. I was like, well, I have like probably a little bit more than half of that in terms of like Facebook friends. Now, how many people on Facebook do you really know? Right. You know, eh, probably, you know, I know well two thirds. I know like another like 150 or so, you know, somewhat. And then the rest are all people who, you know, I have no idea where I met them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, without giving too much away, can you say more about Pesha? She's the first person we meet in the book. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I started the book with her. Um, she, you know, I told you that um, I got the idea and then I sat on it for a little while, sort of because the ways that I was beginning it were just so dissatisfying. And um, it was when I started really thinking about the character of Pesha that I started, that the book really came together. So she is an unhappy an unhappily married woman, uh, married to a brute. And um, her story was sort of inspired by somebody that I dated a really long time ago, if you want to know the truth. Um, I'm, th- this was you know, well more than 10 years ago. I'm a happily married man with a, a, a six-year-old uh, son now, but this was um, you know, about 10 or 11 years ago. I dated this woman who had been a former Hasidic Jew. And... Um, the reason that she left was because that she left Hasidism was because she was in a, 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 an abusive marriage. Um, and the way that the whole of, you know, the, the, the people surrounding her, her community in Brooklyn, um, took his side instantaneously 
um, because he was the male and um, was something that, you know, just felt so crushing to her. And she finally decided that not only did she have to, you know, leave her husband, she had to leave that lifestyle. And um, that definitely lit a fuse with me. Um, You know, and Kesha is not necessarily this woman, but, you know, that story definitely um, inspired me. And, um, you know, I think that there's, you know, qualities of, um, my wife in, in, in Pesha, there's, there, there are qualities of other people that I know. I will say, you know, you asked me a little question about Yiddish. One of Pesha's um, fatal flaws is that she can't speak foreign languages. She can't learn them. Um, it's just, you know, so difficult for her. And um, I will confess that that is my flaw as well. I you know, I can tell you like what a Yiddish word means, like, like, I don't know, like a hundred or 150 of them that I've memorized over the course of my life. But speaking languages, I was the worst Hebrew school student, the worst French student, the worst Italian student, like all, I, I'm amazed that I got through college, much less Hebrew <laughs> school. Yeah, I hear you. But since you brought up dating, can we detour for a second to talk about your first book? Can you just? Sure. Okay. <laughs> It's ah, pretty funny. <laughs> yes. Ah, no, it's uh, memories. Um, so I did write a, a humor book about um, about eleven or twelve years ago, maybe maybe a little bit more than that. Even um, when the movie Knocked Up came out, um, I was writing for the New York Post, and um, I don't know, you know, if you've seen the movie, but um, he is Seth Rogen is the star of it, and you know Seth Rogen at this point because he's like a superstar. But I bear a stark resemblance to Seth Rogen to the point where like people st- have stopped me in the street like, you know, for years asking me if I was Seth Rogen. And um, I when the movie came out, he so he's a very, you know, schlubby, if you will, lovable, but, you know, a little bit feckless um, stoner. And, um, you know, I was a little unkempt myself. And that's probably the reason why I bear so much resemblance to Seth Rogen. Um, and we have the same hair color. Um, but when the movie came out, I was working at the New York post at the time and I was just, you know, hanging around the features pen one day and said like, this guy is going to do wonders for my dating life. And, um, Mandy Stadmiller, who I don't know, she's a, a wonderful writer. If your readers don't know her, she wrote this very funny book called, uh, funny and, and other, she wrote a wonderful book <laughs> called Unwifeable. Um, and she said to me, oh, you should totally write that up, Max. So um, what I did was I went to Bryant Park with a photographer and just went up to attractive you know, women and said, did you see the movie Knocked Up? And if they said yes, I would say, would you go out with him? And if they said yes, I said would say, uh, well, what about me? And I'd hold up a picture of me next to Seth, uh, Seth Rogen next to me. And um, I managed to convince, I managed to get a couple of numbers out of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and actually, um, and even more than that, so the st- when the story came out, um, a friend of mine showed it to somebody at his work who thought I was like, you know, really funny. Like I thought that the article was really funny and I wound up dating her for about a year. 
So I got wow. a girlfriend, a story, and a book out of that, um, out of Knocked Up. So I, I still, I, so I owe Seth Rogen something. And that had better be your favorite movie. Um, <laughs> okay, let's go back to your to the lost shtetl. So can can you speak about how the rabbis of the town feel about each other and their interactions? Sure. Well, you know, part of this book, one, one of the reasons why I thought it was an attractive idea was I really do believe that um, modernity, like technology, modernity, all the things that are suddenly dropped in Kreskel's lap um, are things that you will automatically have disparate reactions to if you, if you, if you show it to like, you know, Two people, ten people, two thousand people—however many are in um, the lost—are in the shtetl of Kreskel. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm a old fan. I'm a loyal fan of old Jewish jokes, and one of the oldest is, you know, the man on the desert island with three synagogues on it. Because he won't go into that one on the right. No way. Um, you know, I think that um, there. Uh, that was actually an important point as far as I'm concerned. I, uh, the, the joke speaks to something, and that is that um, I do think that the rabbis of Kreskel have, you know, very sincerely held reactions to modern life, to technology, etc. And they are very, very starkly different. So they basically do battle. Like, you know, all these things that... Um, they had avoided looking at like um, uh, automobiles and um, television and, and, and modern currency and the internet. All these things are, are, are new and experienced for some in a very positive way and for others in a you know, very, very negative way. Yeah. The town is visited each year, a couple times a year by a band of gypsies, also known as Roma. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? What's going on? Well, you know, I um, part of that was a you know writer's trick in the sense that you know I could get them um, to have some lifelines that they needed, um, but you know, I, I thought that they would have, and I, I and I wanted to have like you know this very very tenuous connection to the outside world. Um, and I thought that that was a, a, an interesting sort of way to, to get them that. Um, but, you know, they're part of the same trade routes. They're, you know, and, and, and the Roma help Yanko uh, uh, Lewinkop, the, the main character, reach the town of uh, Smolsky, a um, fictional town. Um, and one of the... And the way that they do that is through um, through this uh, band of Roma. Um, and I thought that you know there was a, there's a lot of the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, um, 100 Years of Solitude. That that was very much in my thinking when I was writing the book. And um, he also has like this uh, um, a band of Roma that go through the town of Macondo, um, which is was in many ways a, a model for Kreskel. Uh, so I guess we could call it a, a hat tip to the master um, as well. But they were also outsiders, just as the Jews were, and they were also people who weren't going to go to the authorities and say anything. 
So it made a lot of sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was very much a part of why um, it would be that, that would have that lifeline. And they also, they also suffered during the Holocaust and, and the fact that this band survived said something as well. Um, You know, every book goes through a lot of rewrites. Every book goes through a lot of material that um, winds up getting thrown away. And actually there was a lot more about, um, some of the gypsies, the, the Roma, I should say, um, uh, in the original draft that um, wound up on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it'll, maybe it'll show up in the next book. Who knows? It's true. Um, why did Kreskel sever all relationships with its nearest neighbor for uh, something like 80 years before? Well, am I spoiling it to, 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 to give the reasons or? Uh... Um. No, it's just the idea that they, the, the people inside aren't concerned about the outside world. They know it exists, but right up front, there's a reason why they don't care about it anymore. Uh, yes. Right? No, that always had to be, that was always something that I, I, I thought was very important. I mean, there's a, there's a, a specific sequence of events um, that, you know, precipitated, precipitate this uh, um break from the rest of uh, the Jewish world. And um, I thought about it a lot, you know, because I I thought it was a very whimsical idea, um, but it just, I I had to figure out like, you know, what, what could possibly cause some sort of feud um, with the, the wider Jewish world. And that gets back to a little bit what we were talking about before about like, you know, um, a Jewish guy on a desert island with three synagogues. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's, um, there, there is a, a great ability within my people to disagree with others of my people and um, try to <laughs> go yes. our own way and cr- leave Not- a curse on them, et cetera, on the way out the door. Nicely said. <laughs> what are we to learn from Yankel's journey? Well, I think that, um, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what, w- you know, what are you hope that people take away from this? And I, I always think that the thing that I was writing about ultimately was um, uh, the clash of old and new and what um, modernity really means. Um, I do think that um, as a culture, we don't really grapple with that question uh, sufficiently, um, which is not to say, and look, I don't view myself as a Luddite and I you know, really do value my smartphone, even though I hate it passionately. Um, and I think that, you know, we saw some of the great benefits of technology in the pandemic. I mean, it's been so much easier to organize like, you know, a workforce uh, from home all of a sudden, um, it, you know, in, in an earlier time, like people would have starved to death because like the economies would have collapsed. Um, you know, and, and there are so many benefits, um, and there are so many drawbacks as well. I mean, like, you know, the, I say, I hate the phone and because I really, really do hate my phone. Like I am addicted. I look at that all I'm always reaching for in the way that I find I'm, missing out on so many things that are going on in my life. And I know that that's the case with so many other people. Um, and I know that there are so many myths that 
seem like they're, you know, crushed by having just the fact that you have so many things handy all the time. It's almost like being a baby. Like, you know, you just cry for something that's handed to you. And it does something to you. Um, it does something to your, you know, general, like, uh, the way you live your life in a way that I'm not sure that we've grappled with fully as a culture. Hmm. Yeah, you could be right. What would you say is the most transformed character in the book? Um, well, definitely Yonkel is, um, I think. I mean, I think that he... And he's probably the one who's most accepting of change. Um, and I, I think, and he's the character that I, I, I like the most, as I said earlier. Um, I think that um, he recognizes just how much more there is in the world. Um, he recognizes, um, he's, he's the most wily in terms of, which isn't to say that Pesha isn't wily, because I actually think she's very wily. But um, he's the one who builds himself up the most. And, um, you know, I, I think that he changes so profoundly when he, you know, falls in love. And, and I'm, I'm going to not spoil anything more, but, you know, the object of desire becomes his request and it becomes um, his focus. And the fact that he could focus so much requires, you know, great, change and evolution. And I think he does it more than any other character in the book. I have to say it's what uh, transforms a book about a small hidden lost village, uh, a little, the lost shtetl. It, what it is, what that very transformation that you're talking about is what makes this story universal. I hope so. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. So Max, what are you working on now? Ah, the question. Well, I will tell you something. Um, so short stories, I had an agent tell me very, very bluntly, short stories never sell. Um, so, of course, I've been working on short stories. Um, I, I turned into my <laughs> You know, um, while I was, so I wrote this book, I finished this book like back in 2000, I want to say 18. Um Maybe maybe it was early 2019. So it took a long time to find a publisher, to get edited, to be marketed, all that stuff. You know, it, it took a while. And uh, while I was, you know, doing that, you know, just on the weekends, I was writing um, short stories. So I will uh, tell you, Galit, less than two weeks ago, I turned in like a collection of short stories to my, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> to my agent. Um we will see what happens with these short stories. I think that they're actually um, very, very relevant um, and, and fun. Um, basic premise is that um, these are all stories about professional life, which I think people are yearning for now that they don't, they're working from home. Right. This will be a nice little... It's like porn. It's office porn, like you're going to talk about. A drinking fountain. Exactly. Oh, my God. The coffee station. Oh, my God. <laughs> And so I'll tell you something else, Galit, which you could not have known. So this is amazing that you are asking me this question, although it's not, I mean, you know, I've been asked that question, what are you working on? Um, but um, this morning, my father called me and said, so we're, now that you've finished these stories, because, you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy, of course I give it to my parents to read the book before I give it to the <laughs> agent to read. Um, so my father says, well, what next? 
And I spent half an hour going through five different ideas that I have. So I could, there, there, there are a lot of paths that I could take. I just have to settle on one. Wait, you mean he didn't call to say which one he wanted you to take? Well, I mean, he didn't know all of them when the call started. Um, he had an opinion by the end. but Oh, what good. <laughs> As would be expected. As would be expected, of course. <laughs> oh, this was so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I wish you the best of luck. I hope everybody reads this book. It was really one of my favorites of oh, the year so far. Oh, well, thank you so much, Gillian. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.